Welcome to the New Age Podcast. We're back in action. Again, what episode is this? Six? Seven? Forty-five? This I is forgot. episode six. Yeah, six. Chris in the live chat is ready. So that's that's all the, the start I needed to welcome everyone back to the show. We didn't record last week, but it's okay. We're making it up this week. So we're getting back on, on our schedule. Uh, I'm your host, Connor Tripp, and with me are my three lovely... Wait a minute. Who killed Chase? <laughs> was it so Chris? No, oh, it wasn't Chris. Oh, no. Who is this on the podcast? It's a guest. Dan Lehman. Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, Chase just uh, borrowed a board game for a bit too long, so uh, he had to, uh, shall we say, um, play a cooperative submarine game. Oh, did he borrow a love letter? Because that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Yikes. Um, well, with me are two of my normal co-hosts. Jasmine. I would argue that I'm not normal, but sure. Hello. And our le- less normal co-host, Max. I mean, I would argue that I'm not normal because I've also missed a week. Ooh. But... <laughs> tilted we haven't had enough episodes yet for one one week is too much to miss so far we need to get to at least like 10 90 percent of the episodes that's very good uh what's everyone been up to this week well i'm super hype about uh an expansion to hearthstone that is coming out tomorrow uh it's the saviors of old doom and i've been paying a lot of attention to it i know a few other members of the club have been looking forward to it and i'm just gonna I mean, spend as much of my free time as possible tomorrow just jamming it. Jamming the new expansion. Jamming it. I haven't played Hearthstone in, uh, like, two years now. It's it's something. Yeah. Oh, it's a great game. I just I couldn't keep up with it. The solo expansion um, for last expansion, or the solo adventure for last expansion was really good. Yeah, um, they brought back paid expansions, uh, but I think it was worth it. I've heard great things about the way that they've taken the solo content from the original, like, Naxxramas, which was the one that I played back when it came out. It seems like they've come a long way. I don't think they've really released a bad solo content thing. Yeah, and, uh, and I don't know. I'm, I, I think that even if they didn't release any solo content this time and just added on to the previous solo content, it would be still just amazing. Like, the last solo content was so good that uh, I'm still playing it. Wow. 
That's a good sign. You're going to have two expansions to play tomorrow. Unreal. Well, man, well, I don't know. What are we talking about this week? I forgot. Um, Let's look at the agenda. Dan must know. Dan, you're a regular host of the show. What are we talking about this week? Okay, so since... Since, as punishment for uh, getting rid of Chase, you guys have chosen some of the board game topics I know least about. Uh, <laughs> so we will be talking about hidden movement games, and we will be talking about how to self-teach your a game uh, so you can teach to other people. Later <laughs> also, we talk about board games. What are you suggesting? What? This is a board game podcast? I know. Right? I thought we were going to talk about Hearthstone for an hour and a half. Oh my god, we're not. <laughs> we're not, not, not okay. uh, come check out my other podcast, which talks about Hearthstone for an hour and a half. <laughs> Those podcasts exist. I mm. used to listen to them. What's your Hearthstone news? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, let's get into it then. Dan, you're a guest. You have the honor of going first. What have you been playing recently? Okay, so for subjective measures of recently, I have recently played Twilight Struggle, one of my top five board games. I don't, I haven't really worked out the exact list, but it's definitely up there. So Twilight Struggle is a two-player game, and if you to give. A, a comparison if you haven't played it before it's kind of the closest game that I could think of to it is Star Wars Rebellion, another two player game um, so what you do in Twilight Struggle is you, it's a basically a simulation of the Cold War It you, you have the Americans and the, the Soviets and there are uh, basically you play on this bo- this map of the world with major and moderately important countries all around it. And what you're doing is you're trying to vie for influence in those countries uh, by using the cards from a deck that give you either action points or cause events to happen. Um, and the interesting thing, and if you like control enough of the certain type of countries in certain regions, you get points. And it's basically this tug of war where... It, there, you don't have points for the U.S. and points for the USSR. You have one point track, and whenever you one get, one side gains a point, the other loses it. And if it ever goes to twenty in either direction, that side wins. Um, and the oh, oh yes, sorry, go oh, keep going. I thought you were done. Yeah, no, this is this is a quite a deep game, so the short explanation is going to be a bit long. But uh, so the other way you can win is. So when you think of when you think it's Cold War, you think of two things. You think of the United USSR and US, US United States just using the rest of the world and countries at their playground for influence, and you think of nuclear war. And so the other way you win is if on the opponent's turn, it doesn't matter if you caused it or they did, but if on their turn nuclear war breaks out, which uh, well. They, they, it was their turn, so it's their fault. And nuclear war is bad. So you win. Duck so, so that's the other cover. way. Duck and cover. <laughs> Pretty mu- that duck and cover is actually a card in the early game. 
It's a United States card, um, which actually brings me to what's really cool about this game. Um, so, but both there's a single deck divided into three sections: an early, mid, and late war. Um, and this deck has neutral cards, which both sides can use in the same manner. But they also have cards with a, that are associated with either the United States or the USSR. And you, you, all these cards have a numerical value that lets you do certain things, but they also have events that, that can be much more powerful than just the basic point value. And so if you get your own card, you either choose to use the numerical value or you choose the event. But if you want to use your opponent's card, and since you're drawing for the same event, same deck, this can happen a lot, you get the point value, but the opponent's event is going to happen. Now, often you discard it from the deck entirely after an event occurs, but, like, there's a lot of stuff where you have to deal with, like, things can go crazy wrong for you based on events from the opponent's card. So it's a bunch of, do I want to, like, not even play this card and keep it in my hand as long as possible? Do I want to throw it away? Can I mitigate the damage in a way that, since it's going to be discarded, it's better to take this now than worry about it being worse later? And... There's all these interesting plays regarding this, and since after a couple of playthroughs, you'll you'll both you'll both be experienced and know which cards to expect when. There's like a sort of I know you know that I know sort of thing going on where there's a lot of card counting and a lot of nuanced strategy in there. Now um, I would say I would say because there's so many different cards with so many different events, it's a hard game to get into. Would you agree? Um. Yeah, I would. I would agree. It's you basically need to review the deck beforehand um, because otherwise you're just at a massive disadvantage if you don't know what cards are in. Um, and even if you do, you're probably not going to win the your first game. But it's it's so fun. I'd recommend the the first, but just going through the first game just to learn it. Uh, to get to get into the really interesting ones because you can because in terms of my recent play I played uh, I well you played against me once uh, you probably played with Jerry yeah I, pl- I played with Jerry and so we had both the shortest game I've ever had because he had absolutely abysmal luck and then we just had the longest game we got to the late war and late war is not a guarantee at all and it was this razor edge of like we were both we were both pretty much desperate this entire time to just get it to, to get ahead and it was there was a lot of tense moments which is just trial struggle at its best but yeah uh, i mean this game's lived on the the high ranks of board game geek including number one for a long time so it's a it's a very touted game and it's very interesting to me because like a lot of people don't like war games either based on their content or their gameplay or they tend to have less produced art but for whatever reason even people that don't like war games seem to like twilight struggle and it's definitely one that i've only played once and i want to play many more times and if I'm reading this correctly, it was designed by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthew. Um, it plays. It says it plays in about two to three hours. <laughs> I've seen a lot less. Like when you get experienced people like Joe playing, like 
and Zach, they play really fast. So that's good. Also, yeah, right. it says um, it has two players, and the community says that it's best at two players. Is that correct? Oh, gee, I don't know. <laughs> all right, well, we can't talk about one game all night. So I mean, we could. It could be Hearthstone. But <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and getting on with it, the game I want to talk about is, is actually more of an expansion. Uh, and that's Cities of Splendor. Well, we own that game. Exactly. Two years ago, I donated Cities of Splendor uh, in September, and it wasn't until this summer that I played it for the first time. <laughs> and for those unaware of Splendor, it's a game where you uh, take different colored gems and try to purchase cards, working your way up to 15 points. And every time you purchase a card, it becomes a little cheaper to purchase a future card. And so the city's expansion is four different mini expansions, and you can't mix them, which is unlike a lot of modular expansions where you're allowed to mix and match, but these are supposed to be played one at a time, um, and they're all very different. And I did get a chance to sit down and play every single one of the expansions in the box, um, which makes me want to talk about them. Um, at base value, I think Splendor is a good game, but it's a little light for me. It's simple. It fills a good 30-minute filler gap, but there wasn't too much going on. But the expansions really help with that. Um, in one of the expansions, you place these strongholds on the board, which is like this super reserve system where other players can't buy them, um, but you're able to sort of compete with other players for which cards you want. That was a really fun one. There was another one, the Cities module, where instead of nobles, there were these really large alternate victory conditions, such as, like, have 13 points and 5 white cards instead of 15 points, or have 18 points instead of 15 points, or have 10 points but 2 of every card, or something like that. Um, and that was really interesting for variety as well. Um, and then the third expansion was the trading posts which is one of my favorites there are oh i did play that one in, that commu awesome. in, in addition to the nobles there's these communal objectives that uh you can achieve that give you bonuses such as every time you buy a card you get to keep one of the gems and other things like that and that was really awesome because it it incentivized people for going for specific colors despite the nobles on the board, which helped with the gameplay variety a lot. And then the one I want to talk about the most, or the one that was my favorite, uh, I believe is called the Orient, which adds a new cards, like level one, two, and three cards that are a little different to purchase, or the same to purchase, but they have unique effects. Like there's wild symbols and there's cards that you get a bunch of points by destroying cards you've previously built and other interactions like that. And that was a really nice one. So having played all four, I was mild on Splendor before, but I really like it now. It, it really came about for me, and I, I had a very big turn in passion for Splendor. And I've been wanting to play it every week since I played them, which is not something I thought ever would happen with me in Splendor. Uh, for me, I, uh, I really, really love Original Splendor, but my strategy in Original Splendor is one that just it just works every time. And I really don't like that I have a strategy that works every time. So I'm interested in the expansion for possibly dismantling my strategy. I've played two of the expansions. I played the Orient and I played the Trading Post. And I had a good time both times. I don't play Splendor too often. Um, 
because I don't know, I've just played it a lot. It was one of the first games I learned, and I ended up playing it so much that um, I'm a little bit sick of it, but these expansions add enough variety that I'm interested again. Also, by the way, this is designed both Cities of Splendor and Splendor were designed by Mark Andre, um, and they play two to four players. Absolutely. All right. Uh, uh, what have you been playing? I'm going oh. to be a dissenting opinion here. Okay. I I like Splendor for its deep simplicity. And, and I I forget which expenses I've played, but I have played City of Splendor. My guess is you played the. Um the trading post one because that's when we lost some pieces <laughs> uh ha ha um i'm not I, kidding but, <laughs> no um but uh I, I feel like it just loses a bit of the, the the splendor magic when you try to try to add complications to it like it's not not fun but i i feel like they they really just hit it hit it right the first time out i mean splendor is one of those games that if you play the base game a lot um you start to become extremely good at it um it's one of those games that you can get a really good strategy um that works a lot of times and if you get a lot of experienced players together you'll have an extremely like good and grueling game um expansions takes that away so i do understand that true i like it though all right um Jasmine, what have you been playing recently? Well, I was going to talk about Anomia, and then I realized that Anomia is really not my favorite game. <laughs> um, it's a good, it's an okay game. It's not my type of game, though. Um, I'm going to talk instead about On Tour. This is a roll and write game that just came out, like, came out this year. Um, it was a Kickstarter. Um, it plays one to four players, but really, it I own 12 of the mats, so it can play up to 12 players, at least in my version. Um, and it's designed by Chad Deshaun. Um, and I've been keeping this a little bit secret from the club that I own this game, because I want to surprise people, but I figured I'd come out and say that I own this game now. Um, Would it's you well say you've been uh, secretly moving it around? What? Hidden, uh, okay, I, anyway. <laughs> carry on, uh, carry on. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> can I just leave? <laughs> I think I have to go. I have, gotta go. Um, so this is a game where you roll two d10s and you have to write two numbers on your map. Um, it's a map of the United States. Um, you have to write one permutation of the numbers. So like if you roll a 37, you have to write a 37 and you have to write a 73 somewhere. The places where you can place those two numbers are determined by a set of three cards that you have to pick two from in the middle. Um, and then at the end of the game, you have to draw a line that goes from low numbers to increasing all the way up to high numbers. Um, the numbers don't have to be um, right next to each other and you can skip, but you can never go back down. Um, and you get points on the number of states that you include in your route. Um, there are also ways to get wilds and some bonus points uh, for placing numbers in certain states. Um, but that's pretty much it. It's really that simple. It comes with really nice cards, um, giant red dice so everyone can see on the table, um, dry erase mats and markers and everything. It comes with extremely nice components. 
which yeah. is, I think, different, um, a different take. And they said was a different take um, than a lot of Rolling Rights that have come out. I'm very excited to, to play this one. I have never heard of it before you started talking about it, but I like route building in general and logistical movement kind of thing. So it, it makes me excited to play some more Rolling Rights. I've only played a handful. Would you say this is uh, very similar to Welcome To? Um, they're both Rolling Rights, but other than that, they're not that similar. Um, Welcome To has objectives that you're going for and has different abilities. In this game, you really don't have that many abilities or things that you can do. Everyone is doing the exact same thing on every single one of their turns. And you could theoretically end up with exactly the same board if you place all your numbers in the same spot. Um, but um, So like Welcome To, again, you're going for objectives. This has no objectives. Is um, it uh, is a closer similarity um, the roads and railways? Or what was it called? I have Railroad Inc. Yes, that one. I've never actually played Railroad Inc. And I have been meaning to for a while. Well, we'll have to play um, on tour to find out. <laughs> yeah. What have you been playing recently, Max? Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about a game called Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've heard of that franchise. Specifically but, uh, the living card game. It was game, designed right? by... Uh, there, just for, to clear things up, there is a fantasy flight game called Lord of the Rings from like 2000. That is a cooperative game. But this is not the game we're talking about. We're talking about a different Lord of the Rings cooperative game. Yeah, sorry. This is a living card game, meaning that um, it's a game that has sets of cards that are released sort of like a collectible card game, but these sets of cards are set. They are, uh, you will guaranteed get these cards when you buy this expansion and stuff like that. So there's a lot of different expansions that are made for it. Um, so it is a living card game in a way. And uh, what I really like about it is that it goes through a lot of the different lore of Lord of the Rings, going through different missions in the, in the mythos. Uh, and it has... Um, and you can play as different characters, different groups of characters going through those missions. So, uh, for example, you can build your own decks in order to go through these different missions. And uh, recently, we recently rebuilt the decks. Uh, so now we have one that's um, a bunch of dwarves and they're support dwarves, which is not normal for dwarves. Dwarves are usually the fighting type, but these ones are more trying to help the other people get through the quests. We've got the elves as a support class. We've got um, Radagast and his eagles. Uh, we've got uh, different types of decks to really try and exploit the, uh, the quests and to give us the best chance to win. It is a cooperative game against the game itself. Yeah, this is one of my favorite co-op games of all time. Um, Max and I just recently started uh, some of the, like, playing the missions in a campaign-like fashion. Um, it's a very hard game. <laughs> we played a mission last week. We failed it three times in a row. And then we um, left. And then we left, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really fantastic game. I love that, like, coming off of Magic or Hearthstone, like, I love that concept of trying to find the best combinations of cards inside the game. But I also love not having it to f feel collectible. Like, I can just be like, oh, I buy this expansion. I get these exact cards. I can make th these decks with these cards. And that feels great to me. Yeah. And if I understand correctly, this is designed by Nate French, and it's for one to two players? That is completely correct. Uh, that is true. However, uh, you can play up to four players if you have a second copy of the core set, which is Whoa. awesome. And it scales really well. 
Yeah. And um, just going to also mention that uh, I know that this is a recent play section, but this is also a future play for me because immediately after the podcast, I'm going to play this game. So <laughs> Lord of the Rings, great game. Highly recommend it. Um, and you can really uh, help support newer players and stuff like that in the cooperative way. Yeah, living card games have been hot recently. Um, but on that note, before we talk about news, we should hear from our sponsors, don't you think? Well, uh, maybe. I mean, of course. Uh, but today we do have an irregular sponsor. Excuse me? <gasps> Is it website. Dan Lehman? No, it's a website <laughs> website known as Fortunes. They seem to have a fervent fan base with members who will do really stupid things like sponsor podcasts. In fact, their fan base is so fervent that it's become a cesspool that frequently breeds murderers and criminals. On Fortunes, there are many communities to join. There's communities made to help aspiring members to grow their neckbeards, a community based around reporting where various Fortunes members live without their permission, and even a community made to ban new members on the site. So give them a try. Tell them New Age sent you, and they'll give you a one-time offer of a permanent ban. Visit www.fortunes today. I remember I visited this website, and I I was immediately drawn to the um, like the double chin section. Yeah, but unfortunately uh, you couldn't view it because you got banned before you got there, right? I get banned like five minutes in. Yeah, five minutes yeah. in. That's too many chins. You can't me. let them notice. Stealth your way through. Yeah. Oh no, they found you. <laughs> they found us. They're after us. They're going for the band. No. As I said, they're very fervent. Now I have to go into hiding. Oh my God. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> okay. So we're back this week with some club news since it's been a while. Gen Con did just happen, but we're giving time for the news to trickle in. And next week's episode, we will talk about all the juicy announcements from Gen Con, all the fun games that have been talked about. But for now, just some club news. A couple of quick items here this time. First of all, for any of you aspiring or current club members, it's almost September, which means it's almost time for our two biggest events of the year, Fall Fest and Welcome Week. We are taking volunteers for these lovely events because it takes a lot of people to make these events successful. Um, so you can find links to those in our Discord and announcements. So uh, please sign up if you want to be a volunteer. We greatly appreciate everyone's help. Tabling is a lot of fun. Oh, it's so much fun. I love talking to people and telling them about our club. And we get so many people that are interested and catch us. Usually the loudest people at Fall Fest, which is great for us because people are drawn to us and they come over. Uh, Unfortunately, I will be tabling for another club again. But I'll see if I can pop over. I... uh... I've I've tabled I've I've helped in Welcome Week with uh, with New Age every single year and I'm I think it's been getting better every single year I absolutely love it and I really hope I can table again this year. Yeah, it's super I think we've fun. been going downhill now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other piece of club news to share is that uh, we have started polling. Uh, and decided that this year we're going to purchase new games and expansions every month. So we just finished our first poll for August. And uh, it could use a little structural work for next time. But thanks to everyone who voted. Uh, we'll be announcing uh, later on. 
not in this episode, but in the future, uh, what we decided to buy. But we really appreciate everyone who voted, um, and we'll be take we'll be doing some structural improvements for the next one. But it won't be too long; just a few weeks until we'll be voting on what games to buy for September. So stay tuned on our Discord and announcements, um, and. Send the suggestions. We're working on reformatting our suggestion form right now, but in the meantime, you can send anybody suggestions or post them because we want to know what you guys want us to buy. And it just makes the club a better place. And I think it's going to be a really successful program for people to have new games over the course of the year rather than just a big load at the beginning of the semester. I, I would just like to just to put, put, a, put a vote in for a campaign for Northern Africa. For, for the board game that will last longer than your time at Northeastern. Uh, I would like to put in an anti-request for a campaign for North Africa. <laughs> Maybe they should sponsor our podcast. All I can tell you is that campaign for North Africa is designed by Rich H. Berg and is for 8 to 10 players. Yikes. That's, that's, uh, that's great to know. That's like one Avalon game. It also has a weight of 4.65 out of 5. Oh, that's nothing. What has a five out of five? I eat four point six five for breakfast. So, so what's the estimated playtime? Um, what is it? Sixty thousand minutes. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> okay, well, uh, our main topic for today is uh, one that I'm actually very excited to talk about. And as Dan mentioned earlier, thank you for reading off those. Um, we're talking about how you learn a game for yourself. Say you've got a new game, um, or you're interested in picking up a game at a club that you don't know how to play, or you're picking up a game after a long time of not playing it. How do you teach yourself the game, and how do you prepare to teach it to others and play it for the first time uh, at club or anywhere else that you game? What well, do you I guys have? Oh, sorry. No, go on. <laughs> I have had to learn a lot of new games um, because I was on eboard and featured a lot of stuff, and I intentionally chose games I did not know how to play. Um, so the way I normally did it is I go through and I pretty much just read the rule book. Uh, sometimes I'll take out some pieces, but I really didn't feel a need to. Um, or like set up the board. I just I can just kind of read a rule book and understand like 90% of the rules on first or second read through. Uh, so it's not, um, I always like learning games. Uh, learning games is one of my favorite things to do. And then teaching them is also really fun for me. So I can just do that. Yeah. When I teach the game though, I do also hold the book and kind of use it as a guide as well. Yeah, I really, uh, I think that, um, that teaching the game and learning the game for the first time are very different. If you, um, if it's more of a someone teaching someone else situation, then uh, just playing the game sometimes is, is very good. But when you're the first person to learn it and you have to learn it, you know, before a play session so that you guys aren't just going through the rules while you're playing the game, uh, in that way, you just have to, you really just have to buckle down and read the rule book. Sometimes uh, games will have a sort of learn to play rule book alongside the main rule book. And uh, those I, I usually find are very helpful for learning the game for the first time. I agree. I, I'm also one that um, is similar to Jasmine. Like I, I used to be very, very into, um, I would get the pieces out on my table, everything. And I would set up the game entirely. And I would even play like a couple sample rounds as I learned the game. 
after reading the rule book or as I was reading the rule book. And that was very, very helpful for me, um, especially as someone who was sort of new to learning games. That was incredibly helpful for me to be able to see things visualized on the board, to already have practice setting up the game and figuring out, okay, they're talking about this card. This is what it looks like. This is the piece they're referring to. This is how it moves. And that helped me a lot. And I still think I learn best that way. But as I've learned more and more games over the years, it's become easier for me to just read a rule book and slap a game on the table and be able to play it. And I'm proud of my improvement and able to learn games for that reason. But I still really like touching and feeling the pieces. And I would recommend for anyone who doesn't feel like they have a lot of experience learning games to try that out and get the game out on the table and, and play around with it yourself. I feel like uh, I feel like you guys are a little bit spoiled because you guys actually own games. You know, I have to uh, I need to learn the game before I can even touch it at all, and so I have to uh, I have to just buckle down and read the rule book. Yeah, a lot of games have their rule books online, which is awesome. If you go to BGG, they'll have PDFs of their rule book. It's great. Um, highly recommend it. If you're thinking about buying a game, you could just check out the rule book beforehand, see if you'll like it. Yeah, a lot of people um, do that. I actually do not like when games have two or more rule books because it means I have to hold and keep track of two or three rule books um, I, I, and flip between them. And it's like I have, the, the classic uh, learn to play rule book and the rules reference with the actual rules rule book. Uh, I really like that system. Fantasy. I, I, go ahead, Dan. I, I'd agree, but. Go, Connor. Fantasy Flight tends to do this with their bigger games lately. They have a learn to play and then a re- rules reference. And the learn to play is like a normal rule book. But the rules reference is all the edge cases and the glossary for terms you need to look up. And I find that incredibly useful because, again, in a game like Imperial Assault, which game I've been playing a lot recently that uses this, if I have a j- direct like rules question in the fundamentals of the game, I'm using the learn to play rule book and I'm using that to teach. But in the middle of the game, if someone has a super specific question about an interaction, I can look up that term or like, how is line of sight determined? I can look it up in the in the rules reference. It's super easy to find because it's all alphabetized and it answers my specific questions really well. I taught New Angeles, um, like I think at the end of last semester. Um, and oh my God, that that game has two rule books and it was it took me about maybe twice as long to figure out how things worked and I missed some rules because they were in more than one rule book. <laughs> These days, though, there's a lot of resources online. As you mentioned, with the rulebooks being on BoardGameGeek, there's a lot of learn-to-play videos as well. Does anyone use videos to teach their I know, games? I know people who do. I know Bruno did it for Lords of Hellas and stuff like that. Um, I personally do not use them. Yeah, since BoardGameGeek officially partnered with Watch It Played, um, which is a show with Rodney Smith where he teaches games, like as videos, there are so many more games that have teaching videos out there. And he's not the only one who makes them, but that's a really good resource for people who uh, don't learn as well by reading versus watching. Um, So that's a good thing to check out. Yeah. It's also also usually like if you're trying to decide if you want to get the game, it, it also gives you a good idea of, hey, do I think I'll have fun doing this? And it gives you a better better sense of it than just reading through, oh, this step-by-step, step, this is what's going to happen. 
I see Chris in our chat uses or has used at least um, those videos and those types of videos. Um, however, whenever I learn anything like board games or like when I learn to do Rubik's Cube or like literally anything, I find it easier to read something than to watch a video because when I have to go back, if I'm reading, I just go back. If I'm watching a video, I have to scroll and scroll. Yeah, you have to find time. it. Yeah. yeah. That can be tough, but everyone has different strengths in learning. Yeah. I have, uh, I have two more points to bring up at least, and uh, they're both pet peeves of mine with rule books. My first pet peeve is uh, is when a rulebook is very vague. Like, um, for example, in Code Names, Code Names is a rulebook that's uh, it's pretty vague, and you can't really learn it just from uh, all of it, just from reading the rulebook every time. I mean, people say, "Who who looks? Who goes into the rulebook for Code Names?" But almost, guilty almost every time. I uh, I feel like we go into the rulebook because there's an edge case that we need to that we need to check because it's so vague. I mean, I also have a peeve with vague rulebooks, um, but I also have a peeve with uh, rulebooks that like to give like unnecessary terminology. Um, Netrunner is a great example of this. Netrunner is a two-player card game. No, I don't mean keywords. Keywords are totally fine. Um, but renaming components that have universal names that don't need to be renamed. So in, in the case of Netrunner, it's a two-player card game where both players have a deck and a hand and a discard pile. But in Netrunner, uh, the runner's deck has its own term. The runner's graveyard has its own term. The runner's hand has its own turn. And the corporation players, those three things, also have their own terms that are different than the runner's terms. So it's very confusing reading a card that's like, uh, make a run on the opponent player, the opposing player's archive. If you're successful, raid their HQ. And I'm like, what do these terms mean? They could just say, attack their discard pile. Um, but instead, they like to add on a lot of terms, and that's something that I, I don't like. Uh. If we're calling out bad rule books, uh, I'd be remiss to not mention Mysterium. Um, I, I think it's more on the vague side, but I, I am, I stand by the assertion that I don't think anyone knows the correct way to play Mysterium. I, I mean, it's get, it's get, it gets played a lot. Honestly, Dan, I agree with you. I've played Mysterium many times over the years, and the amount of different ways that I've played it is. A lot. Even after trying to consult the rulebook to figure out what the heck we're supposed to be doing. Hey, um, so that we don't, so that we stop uh, bad talking about Mysterium, how about we bad talk Twilight Struggles yeah. <laughs> Twilight Struggles rulebook is so freaking wordy. It's, it's so unwieldy to actually learn the game. And it doesn't even help you learn the game because you need to read all the cards too. Republic of Rome's rulebook? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. I don't. I don't actually mind wordy rulebooks. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind them so much, but sometimes... Uh, well, I, I think that's a, more of a thing of if you're an experienced gamer, some things... Like, you don't need to be told, but the rulebook has to include those things for people who are not. Uh, although, what, one more thing about Twilight Struggles rulebook. Uh, the, uh, they, they do include the cards in the rulebook. But they don't say what they do in the game. They just say random historical tidbits about what the card is referencing. Mm, that's something. Exactly. Great rulebook. If, if we want to talk about bad rulebooks, um, I would like to talk about, um, what is it, Dead of Winter? Really? You think Dead of Winter's rulebook's too bad? I, I don't mind it. Awful. I know how to play, like, 
honestly, I think the only real way to learn how to play Dead of Winter at this point is to play a game with someone who knows how to play because that rulebook is so bad. It's impossible to find anything. Well, something that I really enjoy about good rulebooks, in my opinion, is watch of picture examples. Because sometimes, even if you think an explanation of a rule makes sense to you, uh, you may learn later that you misinterpreted it because you read a word wrong or missed a word when you were reading. Um, but a picture example at least help, helps me very much visualize, okay, this is going on. I particularly like it when someone is explaining combat and, or, well, combat is a good example, but they're like, you explain combat and rules and then they give like an example of like, this is a round of combat and everything happens. I use those examples a lot to check like, okay, did I properly understand what I just read? Yeah, I really I like it. I actually skip those things. <laughs> I really like it when like, um, for example, Zaya. Zaya has a rule book that has a lot of pictures of the different hexes on the board or different uh, things that are going on around the board. So you can, if you see something on the board, you can more easily find it in the rule book instead of having to know, oh, it's called this. And so I need to then look for this word in the rule book and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also games like... Um, uh, Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders has a lot of expansions, and every expansion has all the cards just neatly pictured and rules written right next to those, so it's very easy to uh, go back and find stuff. Yeah, it's on that note, references, talking about learning games, particularly relearning games and teaching games for the first time, I love a good reference card because if a game is a good reference card, I'm able to read the rule book. Maybe I forget some some things in the rule book between the time I read it for the first time and the time I play. But if I have that reference, I can be like, "Oh yes, I recall exactly what's going on here." It helps. It helps me with triggered memory and oh, I see it, so I remember what I read. Yeah. Uh, on that, I think uh, Dead of Winter actually terrible rulebook, amazing reference card. Very I have good not one. seen the rulebook in like, I've not seen the rulebook in like three years at least. And I've, you know, we use the reference card all the time in game. It's uh, it's great. Okay. So, um, so moving on, I guess. Yeah, I mean, does anyone have any final comments on, on, uh, Ways that they they learn games, suggestion, advice for people. Uh, learn how you learn best. Learn how you learn best. That's great advice. Great advice. <laughs> well, in our segue here, um, I wanted to mention something that I forgot in the news section, which is not club news, but it is game news, and that's that just today, Board Game Geek has unveiled their new branding on their website. Oh Which God, is very like exciting. Like a 2000 website anymore? I know, right? They updated their game pages uh, a couple years ago at this point, but now the whole site is updated. They've got a brand new logo. Uh, the site is turning 20 years old next year, which is fantastic. Board Game Geek is an amazing resource user for everything. Um, all right, Max, how many adverts do you have today? Two, two or three? Two more? One more. One more. All right, we don't. We don't need to talk. We don't need to talk to you right now. You don't write those. No one knows that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I have to write. I have to write how to best compliment the people that are sponsoring us. Right. Of course, you have to communicate with you're you're in public relations. Yeah. Which I've never been. From you're one of the uh, in the corner. 
You're one of the two regular hosts of the show that has not been public relations before. Anyway, <laughs> so the genre we decided on for this episode is hidden movement games. Very niche genre, but one that people really enjoy. Uh, a hidden movement game is a game where a main component of it involves some amount of players, usually one, but not always, uh, are able to make movements on a grid or dot-like map, and it's part of the other player's jobs to deduce where they've gone. Um, and this, as I said, this is a genre that there aren't too many games out there that have this, that are in this genre. But the ones that do exist are typically quite good games that people tend to enjoy. Um, I'm a big fan of the genre myself, but it took me a while getting into it, and I've only played a handful of hidden movement games in my life. Yeah, hidden movement games are very fun, but it is also sort of one-sided. Like, uh, there's only one person generally who's uh, who's hidden from everyone else, so it's sometimes a very good finding wherever the person is type of experience and sometimes it's a well they're hoarding all of the uh all of the fun sort of experience yeah i certainly prefer to be the one um on any single game that has a like one versus all i i think a lot of people prefer to be the one uh i know people who don't that that I, I think enough people prefer to be the one that it does sometimes get hard to get a group together. Yeah, and that's always many a struggle. Because the they're usually asymmetrical games, but when it's like a one versus all, the one is going to be more popular because like they're special, they're different. Um, yeah. well, I thought it would be a good time to talk about some of our favorite hidden movement games of the past, present, and future. Max, you went last in the previous category. Why don't you go first this time? Tell us about one of your favorite hidden movement games. Well, my by far favorite hidden movement game uh, is Specter Ops. Um, it's a it's a game that was made by Emerson Matsuchi, uh, and so good. It plays anywhere from from two to five different players, uh, and actually the game sort of changes when you get to uh, to five players, where uh, one of the Four people who's not the hidden movement person becomes a traitor uh, in order to help out a little bit. Um, but one thing that I really think helps with the um, with the dichotomy of uh, of one person getting to do all the hidden movement, the other people having to search, is that there's special abilities uh, for the people who are doing the searching. Um, so that way, it's not you know just the the main person who's sneaking around with all the abilities, it's everyone is, is doing their own sort of thing. So there's uh, four different classes for the, uh, for the main people. One of them uh, drives the car around. Um, one of them is a sort of a beast and he can jump around and sniff to try and find the person. Uh, one of them is a sniper, so that person's very good at, uh, at catching the person off guard when they, um, when they do pop out from the shadows. And the, uh, and the last person uh, is sort of a clairvoyant, so they, they see where the person used to be and so then can extrapolate to where they are now and it really uh, it really does help with the um the management of it because sometimes some of these different aspects of it are just given to all the players and then the players don't feel as special as each other mm-hmm. spectros is my first hidden movement game and it is still way up there possibly 
I'm not sure now, but it, it definitely competes for the best. The the one player, the agent, also has a choice between four unique characters, and their character isn't even revealed to the other players until they're found for the first time. It's a very engaging and compelling experience, and when you do get up to five players, there does become a traitor element that's added in, which is very appealing to people. Um, just, I don't know, Emerson has been on a roll lately. He has been releasing game after game after game. He's doing Metal Gear Solid right now. He just finished the Century Trilogy. And this is one of his first games and, and still one of his most successful. Highly recommend him as a designer. Yeah, super highly recommend the game. Uh, it really does encounter like a lot of different types of, of play styles. Uh, it can really uh, use all those very well. And, you know, if we... If you think back to when we were talking about the um, the different uh, games that we were thinking of getting for the club in that poll, one of those was the Spectre Ops expansion. You know, maybe think about that the next time you uh, think about that. Got him. <laughs> Anyways, uh, what are you going to talk about now, Connor? Well, um... I'm talking about a game that actually does involve the opposite of what we talked about. Um, and my game is called Last Friday, or The Last Friday. Um, actually, yeah, I think the technical title is The Last Friday. This is a game based on Friday the 13th, the, the movie and lore, um, where Jason Voorhees attacks kids at a summer camp. Um, and in this hidden movie game, it's played in four chapters. So for players learning the game, this is really good because you can just play one or two of the chapters. But for players who know the game, you're able to get through all the chapters in two hours or so, which is wonderful. Um, and in the first chapter, uh, the kids, who are the all players, plays two to six, by the way, so it could be up to five kids. Um, they are moving around, trying to find keys to unlock different cabins, and Jason is chasing them. But in the second chapter, the roles reverse, and all of a sudden the kids are moving secretly, and Jason is overt and trying to find them. And then in the third chapter, it flips again, and the fourth chapter, it flips once more. So you have this back and forth between the one player being the hidden movement and the all players being the hidden movement. And I really like that element. And there's also other really cool mechanics in this game. There's a light mechanic where you can unlock the different cabins around the camp, and then you can turn their lights on, and they illuminate different spaces, which makes it more difficult for Jason to move. Um, Jason has all these abilities that are really strong but weaken him if he uses them. Very cool game. Highly recommend it for anyone who likes horror and is interested in hidden movement. That's Last Friday, designed by Antonio Ferrar and Sebastiano Fiorio. It seems really cool. Yeah. We should maybe... Uh, the club doesn't have it yet, right? No, the club does not have it. We probably we only own, like, maybe we should put it in, uh, in the vote. Yeah, maybe I'll suggest it. Yeah. Dan, tell us about a hidden movement game you like. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull off a hidden movement of my own right before I. So I'm actually changing what the planned hidden movement game because I just remembered Whoa. one of my favorites. Um, I'm gonna be talking about Captain Sonar, and Captain Sonar is this really interesting twist on hidden movement. So you so what do you think of hidden movement? When you think of hidden movement, you think one one group hiding from the other moving around. Like, either 
and you, or, and you also think turn-based. Well, Captain Sonar throws both of those out. Captain Sonar... Oh, and one final thing. You think you don't know what direction they're going. Captain Sonar throws that out, too. <laughs> so, so you're thinking, wait, Dan, you just want to talk about Captain Sonar. This isn't hidden movement at all, but that's where you're wrong. You know, Dan, I just looked it up. The hidden movement category on Board Game Geek, sorted by rank, the top game is Captain Sonar. So, <laughs> so, so, and it gets there by its unique concept. So what you're doing, is, since you know what direction, well, first, both, it's an eight-player game with two, two teams of four, piling submarines and both of those submarines they have to say which direction they're going every time they move how, how is it hidden though you don't know where they start so so you have no idea where they are and you just have to figure out okay okay they went this way and that way and this way and that way and okay the map is the map is shaped like this so we we know how can we like track this? And we have this entire one person job on the summary summary. Their entire job is to figure out where the where the frick the enemy submarine is so you can shoot them. And you're doing this as fast as possible because I like I mentioned, there's no turns. It's just can you can you make a valid movement as quickly as possible and confirm it with your team? And so you're going, North, North confirmed, West, West confirmed, West, West confirmed, North, North confirmed. Just as fast as possible, trying to charge up your weapons, trying to escape the enemy team. It's it's one of the most hectic games I've ever played, and there's nothing like it. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. It is very unlike any other hidden movement game. And uh, so I would like to revamp my previous statement of saying that Spectre Ops is by far and away my favorite. Captain Sonar is also my favorite. Yeah, it's so different that we, we, we both forgot about it for like until the last second. Completely correct. <laughs> yeah, that's how they get you with the mind blown up in your face, right? I, I play Captain Sonar. It's wild. It's, it's such a uh, flexible game in that it, it sort of fits in that hidden movement. It fits in, in a good team-based game. It fits in quick games. It fits in, in a party-style game, but it also appeals to people who like some, some heavier things because it's a lot of action. A very wonderful game, well-rounded uh, place in our community. Yeah. I, I also, I know that uh, I know that it's going to say that it plays eight, but I really do think that there is a is the one versus one play is great. <laughs> oh my game. god, I love that. Uh, it's so it crazy. So you know, I know it says eight to play, and that's very rigid. But uh, you know, one person taking on the the task of four people, amazing. I, I'd also recommend the six player version. Uh, the uh, the vice captain doesn't usually have that much to do, so you can usually combine that and the engineer. No, you combine it with the captain. Oh yeah, speaking of the engineer, the engineer is a great way to get new players into the game because it's a very sort of simple thing for them to do. They're just checking off boxes, um, but they also have to keep an eye on everything else, and it lets them get into the game quite well. But uh, speaking of getting into a game... Josh, Jasmine, Jasmine, Jasmine. What uh, what's the game for you? I've been exposed. I hate life. <laughs> I've been Was exposed. there a hidden movement? It's a bad joke. Yeah, um, I'm actually doing letters from Whitechapel. Edit it out, Connor. 
<laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Everyone changed their... Anyway, tell us Josh. about Letters from Whitechapel. Uh, first of all, I would like to say that the Letters from Whitechapel uh, Jack Pond looks a lot like one of the ponds from uh, last Friday. It absolutely does. It's almost the same. Um, but Letters from Whitechapel is a hidden movement game uh, designed by Gabrielle Mari... Gabrielle? Gabriella? Gabrielle, Mari, and Gianluca Santo Pietro. Um, it is for two to six players, um, and it is based on Jack the Ripper, um, who went around killing prostitutes in London and in, uh, whenever he did <laughs> in 1888. Um, so essentially, one person plays as Jack the Ripper, he has to commit. Five murders across four nights, so one of the nights you're doing uh, double duty, um, and then escape to his hideout, which is the same and chosen before the game starts. Um, so the hideout's always in the same spot. The other people play as cops, and they have to track him down, um, and they try to um, figure out his position and catch him or prevent him from getting to his hideout. Um, it's one of the most simple uh, hidden movement games, in my opinion. Um, it's just pretty much just this is what the hidden movement genre is. So if you're looking for a like a very simple hidden movement game, this is probably your game. Um, Jack has different ways that he can move, and each night he refreshes those and gets more. Um, so, oh sorry, he gets less actually, um, and so he can kind of evade the players using special uh, movement tokens. Uh, but other than that, that's pretty much everything there is to um, there's my chapel. Yeah, I I'd say that uh, it's basically the opposite of a uh, Captain Sonar, in which while Captain Sonar tries to say how much can we change about this genre while still technically being the genre, what Lars of Whitechapel is like, okay, let's distill this down into its absolute base components. Yeah, I like I like Letters of Whitechapel as an introductory uh, hidden movement game. It's very simple, and you can play it without any of the extra stuff. I still want to play it uh, with the letters mini expansion that's in the box, because that helps uh, add some depth to it, but it, it's a nice game for getting people baseline familiarity with what hidden movement is. This game was very popular in the club for a little bit um, when we first got it. Absolutely. And it still has, sees a good amount of play. Yeah, it's a great and it also It is also another one of the games with a 1v1 potential. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most hidden movement games can be played 1v1. One player just plays the all. Um, yeah, before we wrap up here, I can't go without mentioning Fury of Dracula. <laughs> It is so good, and as I mentioned it briefly, it's based on the book, Dracula, and it is very thematically tied to the book, um, ba based heavily on the book and not on any of the movies. Um, and it, it's a larger scale game, longer than most hidden movement games, grander scope, um, but each hunter has a unique ability, and they're hunting Dracula around Europe, and Dracula has a lot of movement options if you play the advanced game, and I just, I just really enjoy it, as it's one of my favorites as well. Now, if you like a grander scale game, Fury of Dracula is worth giving a try. Yeah, if, if you're ever with friends on Halloween, it's, it's no board game Halloween without Fury of Dracula. If you can ever convince your friends to let you play Dracula, try Fury of Dracula. You know, you, you bring up a good... I like being I feel, like, I feel like people want to be Dracula more fervently in Fury of Dracula than they want to be Jack the Ripper in Whitechapel. 
Definitely. I do not want to be anyone else but Dracula in that game. Oh, I don't. I'll play with you anytime. I'll let you be. Uh, you. I'll let you be Dracula. You'll be my hunter. I'll be your hunter, and you'll die on at my hand. <laughs> All right. Mm. Well. Oh, you know, Chris in the chat here is mentioning Whitehall Mystery. Whitehall Mystery is a toned-down uh, or shorter version of Letters from Whitechapel that came out more recently. I haven't played it, but uh, I know that Kramer has a lot of thoughts on it, and I've heard, I've heard good things about it, but I'm not sure how it shapes up because I don't necessarily think that Letters from Whitechapel in itself needs to be more simple than it already is. Okay, well, we've done good on time this week, just about at the hour mark, but, you know, we can't leave the show without hearing from our sponsors again. So, Dan Lehman, do you want to wait? Could. <laughs> we could leave the show, but Dan okay, would be okay. upset. Our, our, spon- our sponsor this night is uh, the anchovies. The anchovies. <laughs> it's, it's where Chase is next to. Well, uh, what? Uh, speaking of uh, our actual sponsor, uh, uh, you've probably heard of our second sponsor. It's another website this time. What? This one's called Christian Tingle. On Christian Tingle, oh, you can find all the religious pics you could ever need of the sexiest elf in Hyrule. In the confession booth, consuming the body of Christ, and even in prayer position, this magical being will make you believe in the miracles of the Lord. Tingle has given up his rupee avarice for some belief in Lazarus. Rekindle your belief with Christian Tingle today. Dear Lord. I I, I gotta say... Christian Tingle, not that popular in America, but he's it, it's super popular in Japan. Oh, yeah. What are you trying to say? Um, okay, then. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> I think you guys are reading into this in a different way than I intended. Yeah, I, I think he's just being pretty straightforward. Like, Tingle is just a popular character in Japan. But what if he's Catholic? What if Dan's Catholic? Then <laughs> thanks for listening to another episode of the New Age Podcast. Dan, thanks so much for coming on and being our guest in Chase's absence this week. It was a pleasure. Oh, it was a pleasure having you. Somebody disagree with me. No one would. Christian Tingle may disagree with me, but I think it was great. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening uh, and tuning in to us, as always. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor FM, everywhere podcasts are distributed and of course if you want to be a guest on the show you have a topic idea a game you really want to talk about let us know in the podcast banner chat in the new age discord yeah if you want to be a guest on the show uh, you have to kill one of the members though. <laughs> yeah that's a requirement yeah that's, that's <laughs> how it works <laughs> <Whoa>! <laughs> all right uh, for now uh, i'm signing off everyone else you have final words to say here the words are final See ya, and uh, never go on Christian people.